Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Kaiju Weekly, the weekly podcast that introduces you to the wide world of giant monster movies. I am your host, Travis, and with me, by, back by popular demand, Michael. Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing out there? Oh, man, we're doing good. We're doing good. Uh, how are you doing, Michael? I'm good. I'm great, actually. Uh, and Travis, before I, I, I feel bad if I don't mention it, but do you realize that this will be the 30th episode of Kaiju Weekly? 30 episodes. It is ridiculous. I never thought we would have gotten this far. I mean, I knew we'd always get this far, but it's just crazy to think, think about. We're doing, we're already at number 30. And I know that we've been pumping out content like crazy lately, especially during, um, excuse me, during the coronavirus. And mm -hmm. hopefully, at least it's, it seems to be some of that, like the coronavirus and the quarantine, that kind of stuff is starting to let up some. But uh, I don't think our content is going to be letting up much. What do you think? No, hopefully not. Hopefully we've still got a few bonus episodes that we can put out for people. I know I have a couple of ideas for some uh, games for us to play. So uh, hopefully we'll we'll still be putting out some bonus episodes here real soon. Great. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it's been, it's been really fun uh, putting together all these little, these bonus episodes and these extra uh, little tidbits of entertainment for everybody. And uh, I just hope that, you know, everybody's enjoyed it. And I just wanted to make mention that this was our 30th episode and it's really not uh, too far away from our one year anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. That's going to be so much fun. I'm looking forward to our one year anniversary because we have big plans for it. Uh, but yeah, I, I know that uh, was it statistically most podcasts don't make it past episode seven. And here we are. Episode 30. Episode 30. Yeah. I mean, that's that's almost the entire span of the Godzilla franchise. So, uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're catching up on you. Monsters versus men. I know you guys are already <laughs> a ton of episodes in, but uh, and you're you. I think you guys I think they started um, around the same time we did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, I think they were they started uh, right not long before me and Steven decided to restart uh, Kaiju Weekly. So, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're not far behind them. Right. OK, so uh, that's so if you're ready, let's uh, let's get into some news, shall we get into the news? Cue the beady beady. <laughs> All right. So the first bit of news that we have is Godzilla versus Kong news. Uh, Godzilla versus Kong gets a PG-13 rating to the surprise of no one. <laughs> yeah i'm not super surprised that it's getting a pg-13 rating i really there was some rumors floated out there that it was going to get an r rating i highly doubt it no it's never going to get an r rating that's ridiculous to even think that it would get an r rating because right. it, like part of the appeal of these movies is the fact that it's multi-generational mm -hmm. and making a a godzilla especially a hollywood godzilla like i can see something like shin godzilla you know something that's very uh avant-garde for lack of a better way of saying it uh being r-rated but but just like a big budget hollywood version of godzilla and king kong you're not going to go r-rated because then you're cutting off a huge portion of the audience that's going to go because it's not just cutting off 
a younger generation of people. You're cutting off parents and, and grandparents who would take their kids to see this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, it it, it does make me curious, and uh, we'll get into the news in just a second, but it, it, what, it does make me a little bit curious what an R-rated Godzilla movie would look like. And it probably would look closer to uh, maybe Shin Godzilla with a little bit of extra violence, uh, possibly some more language and maybe a touch of nudity thrown in. I don't know. I don't think it needs it. I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm just saying, what would an R-rated Godzilla movie look like? But, you know. Yeah, we we need that Godzilla sex scene. <laughs> no, no more. No, we don't. No, we don't. We don't know. No, I, I will say this. I will say this plain and clear. After after that whole uh, mess with the the Mothra Godzilla shipping after King of the Monsters, I have had completely enough. Enough is enough with the monster sex. Enough is enough. <laughs> oh man. Um. Yeah. So really, technically, or I say technically, but really, the um, the PG thirteen rating only affects people within the United States because. Yeah. Outside of the United States, the rating system is completely different, and uh, they have an entire different setup on how they give ratings. So this would only really affect people within the United States anyway. But uh, the reason that Godzilla vs. Kong has gotten a PG-13 rating, it says, for intense sequences of creature violence, destruction, and brief language, to which Adam Wingard uh, said, that's an understatement. <laughs> well... All right, he should know, and that makes me very excited. Yeah, yeah, I, I am excited to see it. Um, I mean, it was never going to be PG, because we know it's going to be too violent to be, P you know, rated PG. But it was never going to be rated R for the reasons that we discussed. So PG-13, it's like, was any, is anyone surprised by this? Like, seriously. <laughs> anyone who has... Anyone who has reasonable sensibility about this whole genre would have could have seen a pg-13 rating coming coming from a mile away oh yeah yeah for sure um the next bit of news is we have two new plot summaries for godzilla versus kong uh that have Ooh. been shared on imdb now uh how official these are who's to say but they did show up on imdb so we're you know we're gonna we're going to talk about them, but uh, I can't guarantee that these are official or that they are from anybody who has anything to do with the movie. Um, but they well, are interesting. You, well, let me ask you really quick. Is it IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes that allows you that, that allows um, account account holders, viewers, uh, the general audience, let's just say the general audience to insert their own plot summaries? Uh, IMDb does that for sure. Okay. Yeah, you can definitely so, submit a uh, a plot summary. So take this with a grain of salt. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, but yeah, the first new summary states that as the gigantic Kong meets the unstoppable Godzilla, the world watches to see which one of them will become king of the monsters. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Uh, yeah. I mean, anybody could have written that one because that's, yeah, we know they're going to be fighting. Um, then the second summary is longer and mentions that in a new world where man and monsters now coexist, Monarch must lead the way to a prosperous future alongside the Titans, keeping humanity in check. 
However, rival factions that want to manipulate the Titans for war begin to rise under the guise of a nefarious conspiracy, threatening to wipe out all life on the planet. Meanwhile, on Skull Island, strange seismic activity draws the attention of Godzilla and Kong alike. Now, this one is, that one's kind of interesting. If it is in, in any way official or by someone who knows the actual details of the plot, mm-hmm. this is kind of interesting because we are getting, you know, glimpses of what a post King of the Monsters world is supposed to be like uh, right. with, with humanity trying to coexist with the monsters, um, mm-hmm. Monarch now leading the way in that. And right. And th- yeah, go ahead. And it was it was it was pretty much foreshadowed anyway in King of the Monsters when uh, during uh, Doctor Th- Doctor Sarazawa's uh, key to coexistence speech before he sacrificed himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is nothing new. In fact, I think I've even read this plot summary before. So yeah, it, this was foreshadowed in uh, King of the Monsters, and uh, it it's not really surprising to me at all. And if you're one that follow, if you are one who has read some of the spoilers, three, two, one, this may be foreshadowing a certain mechanized kaiju as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's that it's interesting, but like we said, we got to take it with a grain of salt because exactly. we don't know whether it's official or not. Um, moving to the next bit of news, we've got some collector figure news. Uh, so two new NECA figures have been revealed, quote unquote, I'm going to say quote unquote revealed. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a new uh, NECA Godzilla 1989 Biolante Bile figure, uh, mm-hmm. which shows God- the 1989 Biolante Godzilla Goji but uh, covered in green slime, basically. Like, he has a green paint job uh, to look like right. he's been covered with the Biolante bile. Uh, and we also have the uh, NECA Godzilla 2003 Hyper Mazer Blast figure, uh, which shows a Godzilla from, you know, 2003, but has a paint job to show it's uh, where he's been shot by the uh, hyper Mazer Blast from Kiryu, right? Yeah, and so yeah, it's uh, it's it's got a, a you know unique paint job. Now the thing about this is okay, these figures, the images that we see are from a Chinese retailer uh, who've opened up pre-orders for these figures. So there's a possibility that these are not real or they're knockoffs or of some kind, but it's more than likely that they're real. Like there's no, there's no reason not not to believe that they're not real. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm, I'm pretty confident that they are real because it's right in line with what NECA has been doing with some of their figures anyway in the in the most recent releases in the most recent reissue releases i should say uh the example of um <clears throat> i think it was the 2001 gmk godzilla it uh, it had a variant where it looked like uh it, w- it it looked like godzilla was emitting his atomic blast so like the front of the figure was painted blue and white so sort of to uh 
emulate that blue and white glow from Godzilla's atomic fire. And then they've done this too for like some of the King of the Monsters releases. And, you know, it's not uncommon for the, especially for these six to eight inch figure lines like NECA and SH Monster Arts to put out these uh, special color variants to sort of add so that collectors would have something else to to add to their shelves other than just the standard uh, charcoal gray, bone white Godzilla figure. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you because we do know that, because it, it was officially uh, announced by NECA that the, the 1989 Biogoji by and 2003's uh, uh, Tokyo SOS were coming out soon. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, in fact, I think you can even pre-order them now. Yeah. So this was so it makes sense that you know this would be real because we already know that those are the two figures that are coming down. But that's what my mm-hmm. question was going to be: Are these going to be variants of those figures, or would these be the official figures? And we just didn't know that they were going to be painted this way. No, these are going to be variants of those officially released figures. I think the ones you're talking about, I want to say they were they were teased and pre-orders were uh, put out uh, in, I think, January during, I think, the New York to- the New York Toy Fair, uh, that big toy expo that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, New York has every year at the I think it's in I think it was in January. I'm pretty sure when these. Yeah. Were, uh, when, yeah. And. Yeah, these are just going to be additional special releases to those figures. Basically, they just basically took the same sculpt, but gave it a, a new and interesting paint job. Okay. Um, one thing that I do really love about this uh, so that's been circulating on Twitter is the memes that have come out from the Bio uh, Goji, the Biolante Bile figure. Uh, mm-hmm. Because like somebody posted, uh, um, when you've had a big lunch and go on a roller coaster <laughs> uh, and stuff like that, so I, I kind of like that. But yeah, these are really cool looking. I I, I like the idea of these um, these variations, like you said, of of the you know typical figure. So if you want the regular figure, you can also get the the variant of it. Yeah, these are these are super interesting and. I would imagine they're going to be within the same price point as the ones that came before it, which is I think NECA's price point is anywhere between uh, $25 to $30. So for a six to seven inch tall figure and NECA makes some pretty, some really, they've stepped up their game in the last couple of last several releases rather uh, with some of their sculpts and they look really good. I'm going to say that they're either on par, if not somewhat, uh, better because of the price point than SH Monster Arts, which tends to be a little bit more higher end, a little bit more articulation. But I don't think for for a NECA figure, you're not going to sacrifice a whole lot. As far you're going to get a solid figure, and all the and these special paint releases, that's really all they are is just a special release, something a little extra to give the fans and the customers so they can add it to their shelves. It reminds me a whole lot, really. Um, to an extent, not to a full extent, but some of these, uh, have you seen like sort of the Safube, the Safube figures where these little, these little colorful, um, uh, sort of like the one I showed you. It's like, uh, it's, Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, it's a, like the one I showed you was a GMK. It's, it's a stylized GMK figure. Like you can obviously tell it's GMK uh-huh. from the sculpt, but the paint application is a little bit different than what you would get with your typical charcoal gray and bone white. 
Mine, I think, uh, mine is like turquoise and red, like a turquoise reddish brown. And they're like these really cool little uh, colorful things that you can add to your shelves just to give some interest. I've been kind of getting into these more uh, colorful, uniquely painted figures uh, because, you know, as much as I love my X plus figures, you know, the C, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of buried in a, in a sea of charcoal gray and bone white at the moment. So I'm, I'm kind of right. looking for something a little bit different. And I think that these NECA figures, the way they're painted, especially that Biogoji, that Biogoji paint application, I'm looking at it now and just the way that green and yellow looks against sort of that charcoal gray of Godzilla's skin, it looks really good. And I think people mm -hmm. are going to really like having these in their collections. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It's one of the things that uh, I, I do, like you said, I, I really like about NECA is that they are offering these alternatives because uh, they have like one of the figures that I was looking at, because I'm not a collector, but I do like the NECA uh, figures. So right. they're the ones yeah. I look at. Um, they did the uh, poster variation of the 50, uh, the 54. Uh, which actually looked was supposed to look like the the 1956 uh, King of the Monsters one. Oh. So it's it's painted a bright green instead of the typical charcoal gray. Uh, and then you have the um, was it Super Godzilla uh, or or Godzilla um, for the NES figure that came out yes, that yes, was yes. painted blue because of the sprites in that was a blue Godzilla. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it is really interesting and like. Uh, I know they have the uh, regular King of the Monsters figure, but then they also have a the fire or burning Godzilla variant of that one. Mm -hmm. So, yep, they uh, do. yeah, so it is neat that they, they're offering alternative colors to a lot of these things, like you said. Yeah. And um, like I said, like I said uh, they're going to stick. They're probably going to stay around that twenty five to thirty dollar price point, but we can spend all day on this. Let's let's move on to the next little bit of news. Yeah, so our last bit of news is there is a new special trailer that came out for Ultraman Z or Ultraman Z, yeah. depending on where you're where you're from. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so this came out because uh, just re well, one because the show is starting in just a like a, a week or two from now. Um, but also they had a special thing on the Subaraya YouTube uh, channel where uh, they had like cast interviews and things like that. And it was all in Japanese. They had no English subtitles, so I didn't uh, watch along with it. But that happened earlier this week, and then this trailer came out. And so every, it, they're just ramping up a lot of you know the uh, promos for this new series that's starting very yeah. soon. Um, so looking at this trailer, what are some things that stood out to you? Oh man. Um, just, well, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The, the new ultra suits, like the new Ultraman designs are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, I got just a very sneaky glimpse at that brand new, sort of that new shark Kaiju that we covered. I think it was a few episodes back. Mm -hmm. Um, he was in battle with, with, uh, Ultraman during that trailer. And the little glimpse that I was able to to see of him looks really good. And it also looks like they're bringing back, you know, as part, sort of part of the course with Ultraman, they're bringing back some more classic Ultraman villains and Ultraman Kaiju uh, to this series as well. But, um, you know, it, the trailer was, was awesome. 
thankfully it was English subtitled, so I was able to follow along and, and read mm-hmm. it as I was watching. Uh, but yeah, it just looks amazing, and I'm I'm just really looking forward to to just watching it if I can ever if I can find it. Hopefully, I don't have to you know use a VPN just to watch it, but most likely I will if I can even find it in real time at all, or uh, if we'll just have to wait uh, until it comes out later, similar to Ultra Geed and Ultra Orb and and Ultra X. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm I'm curious about. I'm wondering, uh, Crunchyroll at one time did have where they would simulcast uh, Ultraman, I think uh, Ultraman Orb or Geed, one of those, they they simulcast at one time. So I'm wondering if Crunchyroll still has a partnership with Subaraya right now to where they can do that, or if they are not going to be simulcasting at all and you have to wait until it comes out uh, later on. Um, that would be interesting because I would really, I'm with you. I would like to watch it week to week. I, w- I really would. Uh, one thing that's, st- one thing that stuck out, uh, stuck out to me, I can't talk, uh, is the fact that Ultraman Geed is coming back in this series. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was, uh, that was towards the end of the trailer. Um, they showed that Ultraman Geed is coming in and is going to be, uh, kind of the rookie to uh ultraman zed or zet uh and that he is going to be kind of helping uh helping out so that's interesting because uh i mean it's not unprecedented to have you know returning ultraman from previous seasons but it's just interesting that geed was the one that that they went with no it's not and i think it was ultra I watched Ultra Orb, but I didn't act, I didn't finish the entire series of Ultra Orb. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, Ultra Seven made a return to Ultra Orb too. Uh, okay, some, some version of Ultra Seven made a return to Ultra Orb during that series. I'm not a hundred. I can't remember a hundred percent on that, but I want to say I'm I'm pretty confident. Uh, but I could be wrong. I'm still sort of a an ultra newbie. So yeah, yeah that's you're... me too. I'm, I'm still new to Ultraman. One thing, one thing I, I was curious about. So maybe, uh, um, people who listen to this, who are more into the Ultraman lore than what we are. Um, I know in Ultraman orb, he, there was the, the premise of the beta capsule or his, his changing device that he could access powers from previous Ultraman. And it looks like they're using the same premise here. So I'm wondering, is that something that's unique to those two series? Or is there more Ultraman series out there that where the, the Ultraman that's the star of the, of the series can access like the powers of previous uh, ultras. Cause that, that was an interesting. Yeah. Obviously, let's uh, like like you said, Travis. We're sort of ultra newbies. We're still on this. We're still on our ultra journey, as we like to lovingly call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, who, if you if you guys out there are listening to this episode and you know uh, the answer to Travis's question, please let us know on on Twitter when we post this episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely do that. Um, also, another uh, interesting thing that stuck out to me um, is the robots that are are part of the storage the team that the ultraman is a part of 
in this that fights the kaiju. So you're not just getting Ultraman fighting kaiju. You also have these piloted mechs mm -hmm. that are coming in and joining the fight too. Um, I really like the design of those. I actually like the design of those more than the Ultraman design because they're so like, oh man, they're so like 1960s sci-fi silliness and I love it. They look yeah, so cool. Is. Yeah, they are totally. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing I'm 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 looking forward to seeing the entire the entire storage unit in action. Yeah, the storage <laughs> unit. Oh man, it's uh, it's a, such a yeah. We'll just leave anyway. it. We'll just leave it at that. I'm sorry. If that's we'll just we might edit that out. I don't know. <laughs> um but yeah, so that's that's the news. Um Looking forward to Ultraman Z or Ultraman Z or Ultraman Z, depending on what how you want to say it, uh, coming out on June 20th. Uh, but yeah, so that's it for the news. So we can jump into our main topic for this week. All right, let's go. So the trivia question that I asked uh, last week to hint to this week's episode was, what independent kaiju film features a battle between a sea monster and a real-life Japanese World War II battleship? And we had a few answers. I'm going to start with a funny one this week. Nicholas Blackler gave us Popeye versus Saltine, the Cracker of the Sea. <laughs> oh, Nick. Nick. Oh, Nick. Yeah, Nick. <laughs> you can always give us a funny one. Uh, and then uh, we had Damon Hlad. Halad. I don't know how to say that. Um, who said Raigo versus Battleship Yamato. Roger Hansen said Raigo versus Yamato and a few other titles. <laughs> uh, Jess uh, Zavala, I think is how you say that. I'm sorry I if I mispronounce anybody's names. Uh, said Raigo. Uh, Griffin Strikarski? Strikarski? Close enough. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, said Rago. Uh, Sydney Simmons said Deep Sea Monster Rago versus the Battleship Yamato. Uh, Godzilla Novelization Project Daniel on Twitter uh, said Easy Peasy that he shared a picture of Rago. And then I want to finish off with uh, our a um, Patreon supporter of ours, Thorax, who gave us Godzilla versus Death Gilas or Gamera for truth now do you get that because i'm I, well, here's the thing i think thorax threw this in there to test our metal when it came <laughs> to our kaiju knowledge yeah because go ahead now i was just gonna say that godzilla versus the death gilas uh is an un uh, I think it's it's part of those lost films or uh, lost scripts for the Godzilla series. Uh, there were several lost scripts, uh, just like King Kong and some and Gamera and some others. Uh, there were some lost scripts and lost ideas for the Godzilla series, and I want to say that God, Godzilla versus the Death Gilas uh, was one of them, along with Godzilla versus the Wolfman, you know, and some others. Uh, well, just like. Godzilla vs. the Wolfman has had fan-made films. Uh, Shinpei Hayashiya, the director of the movie we're talking about today, did a short film 
mm-hmm. that was Godzilla versus the Death Gila, Gilas or Gilas or Gilas, however you want to say it. Um, so Thorax, I think, threw that in there because of Shinpei Hayashiya, that that was his one of his films, his short films that he did. Also, Gamera for Truth was also Shinpei Hayashiya did that. It was a, a I think, 45 minute long uh, sequel, fan made sequel mm-hmm. to the Gamera trilogy, yeah. Uh, that that Hayashiya did so i think thorax was testing our metal to see if we knew our stuff well how did we how did we do guys that's all i that's all i have to ask is how did we do (laughs) so uh, i finished up on that one so yeah our main topic this week is rego the deep sea monster versus the battleship yamato or also known as rego king of the sea monsters as it was known when it was uh fully released here in the united states now, before we get started, Travis, I have to ask, uh, is it Rago or Rigo? Now, I'm going to say I will probably go back and forth on it because I'm just, I, I, that's just how I am. I'm probably going to go back and forth. So it's probably going to annoy a lot of people, mm-hmm. but it's supposed to be Rago. Okay. It's supposed to be Rago. But I will probably go back and forth between Rago and Rigo just because of, of that's just me. But it, the it, in Japanese, the way that uh, it's supposed to be pronounced is Rago. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> sorry if people get annoyed with us. Okay, that's fair. But I just wanted to make. A, I was going to say if people are annoyed by our pronunciation of Rago, they're going to be really annoyed when I go through the cast and crew list. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, so yeah, this movie was directed by Shinpei Hayashiya. Uh, it stars Tayo Sugiura. Su- yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Again. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry for the pronunciations. Uh, Mai Nama- Na- Nanami. Yukijiro Hotaru. Susumu Kurobi. Uh, or Kurobe. Yoji Tanaka, Yumika Hayashi, uh, Mickey Curtis, <laughs> which was pretty easy. Uh, and then the creature design was by uh, Keta Amamiya, uh, who is a very well-known uh, creature designer. He worked. He has worked on um, Super Sentai and Common Rider and a lot of things. Uh, and then the creature actual uh, prop and puppet was made by Tomo Haraguchi. So, uh, yeah, that has, I always, I always struggle with those names, with the Japanese names. I'm oh, I sorry. Do too. I'm not. I do too. <laughs> so this movie was originally filmed in 2005. So remember that as we, as we go into the talking about this movie, uh, everyone, but the plot breakdown in the midst of World War II, the battleship Yamato, the pride of the Japanese Navy, joins with the main squadrons of the combined fleet in the South Seas while lurking in the waters off the Truk Islands. Truk, Truk, Truk Islands. The crew of the Yamato spot what is believed to be an enemy submarine and fire on it. The attack is a success. However, what sinks to the sea bottom is not a submarine at all, but a massive, mysterious creature that will later bring disaster upon the fleet. So, 
Michael, what are your opening thoughts on Rago, the deep sea monster versus the battleship Yamato? Okay. So when you and I watched this, it was, it was actually my second time only watching this film. The first time of course, uh, was during our very first Kaiju quarantine back in April. Um, and it was really late at night and you know, there had been some alcoholic beverages. So I don't know if I got the full, I don't know if I appreciated it in to the fullest at that moment. So, uh, being able to watch it again and review it, I actually, uh, I actually have more respect for, you know, what was trying to be accomplished for this film. And we have to keep in mind, I think this film, what was made in 2005 as an independent film. So the budget was not mm -hmm. super high. Um, uh, but overall, um, you know, I, I liked it. I liked it for what I had to take it with. I had to take it in context of what it was trying to say, what it was trying to accomplish. And, you know, given the fact that it was an independent film with not a huge budget there, I, I was very uh, sort of I am sort of forgiving towards it just because of that. And um, overall, it's enjoy it's an enjoyable film. It's an enjoyable film. I like uh, Rigo, Rigo's design. Sorry. Um, I think there are some shots in the, I think there are some sequences and shots in the film that are very well done. Uh, and then there are some others that are just sort of, yeah, meh, you know, just sort of, just sort of leave, yeah. sort of leave you scratching your head a little bit. And, um, yeah, uh, one of the reviews that I read on, I think it was on Letterboxd, uh, said that this was like a sci-fi original movie if the person who made it actually cared about what they were making. And that's fair. And yeah. And I, and I kind of see that because it, the effects yes are, are not great. It's got a low budget. It is, there are a lot of flaws in it, which we'll get into, but you can tell that there's a lot of care put into it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that needs to be remembered that there's a lot of, a lot of heart went into this into this movie, even if the movie doesn't measure up to the same quality of other Kaiju films, um, getting into our likes and dislikes. Uh, one of the things that I like about this movie is there are some very stylistic choices in this mm, right. that may seem weird. And, and yeah, and some of them don't, hit completely the way that they're supposed to but there's some shots like like the our, our choices that were made like starting it in black and white and then shifting into color mm -hmm. um the the uh the end which we'll talk about the very end of the movie uh there's some just stylistic choices in here that are unique and i have to give uh Hiyashia credit for trying original things in a kaiju film because i i don't know of many kaiju films that are going to take risks like that no um, i think you're right yeah. I, I think you're right and there are there are definitely some very unique and oftentimes very weird um uh, uh approaches that they take during the film uh, one thing that stands, one thing that comes to mind first was it was during the scene where uh, our lead, our lead character is reading the love letter. And instead mm -hmm. of, you know, 
you know, giving some music. So this is this is a period piece through and through through and through. This is through uh, this is during the world. This is during World War II. It highlights uh, it lightly touches on um, Japan's involvement during World War II. It, it takes place on a battleship, given, you know, obviously its name. Uh, but anyway, during that scene, he's reading a love letter uh, from the young woman that we see at the beginning of the film during the black and white sequence. And instead of giving us sort of a more period accurate love song. I don't know what period accurate love song in Japan at that time would sound like, but you know, I know what it sounds like here in America. And just as an example, mm. if this was made in America, you know, during, during this time period, the love song would be something that was played probably during this particular time period. So anyway, mm -hmm. um, instead of doing that, they chose to use J-pop, which mm. was, uh, it was, jarring i know that you and i both you and i both noticed it right off the bat and we both agreed i believe we both agreed I, if i'm if i'm remembering correctly that it was just very jarring and just it just kind of um it just kind of uh um caught you off guard a little bit yeah yeah the musical choices in this movie overall were really weird and um, poorly used um even the regular score mm -hmm. just seemed like it just recycled the same theme over and over and over again, wasn't really building on it at all. And so it just was just boring. It was a mm -hmm. very boring, generic score. And then, like you said, the, the inclusion of J-pop in it was just so, uh, it, it was so bizarre and, and so distracting from this, period piece that they had set up so it's almost just like if you had no score at all would it have been better <laughs> than what they gave us yeah and i think the score um the score was a little bit you know to be desired obviously uh it reminded me and i know a lot of folks are probably going to disagree with me wholeheartedly but it reminded the score for this reminded me a lot of the gmk score where in the GMK mm -hmm. score, it was sort of just this continual one note song drumming through the entire film that like through the whole song or through the whole movie, rather. It was sort of just that one uh, note that they or that one song that was and they had variants on that song, like when King Ghidorah and, and others showed up, like they had little variants that built upon that. And and what they did there was great. If you listen to uh, each theme, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah and uh, Baragon score all together in sequence, it sounds like one gigantic, just one long song. But anyway, bringing it back to this movie, it sort of reminded me of that because there was no there was no real variation in the score for Rigo. It was just sort of uh, a Rigo. It just sort of just drummed along the same note over and over and over. And, you know, that's probably due to budget. They didn't probably have the budget to hire someone that, to spend a, a ton of time on the score for this film. So they were doing the best they can. Yeah, it's still the score of a, uh, of a, you know, low budget or poorly budgeted movie can save it right and this one just didn't and there there were there were like I, I get that they may not have had the time to put into the score so i mm -hmm. get that with the like repeated 
you know, the repeated uh, notes throughout the movie, but the inclusion of J-pop and, and the inclusion of other stuff, uh, just that's choices that were made, and those choices just didn't hit with me. And so that that um, that I don't think is budgetary constraints. That was just choices that were made right. that I don't think uh, fit with the movie that they were making. Right. Uh, it would have fit maybe with a more modern movie, but this was supposed to be a period piece, and it's just yeah, it just doesn't doesn't work. Um, let's let's break down this with uh, let's get into some of the characters there in this movie. Uh, starting with the human characters, we'll get into the monster uh, design and everything in just a minute, but let's talk about some of the human characters. We have uh, uh, Mr. Gamera Trilogy himself uh, <laughs> uh, coming back, uh, Yukijiro uh, Hotaro. He, he is so good. Mm -hmm. He is so good. Like, I, yes, he is very hammy. Mm -hmm. And he's very comedic in his delivery, but he is an excellent actor and I enjoy watching him in everything that he's in and, and watching a lot of uh, Japanese TV shows and movies and stuff outside of just the Kaiju stuff. I've seen him in a lot of other stuff and it's just like, every time I see him, I just enjoy his performance because he is he is very hammy but it's it's in a good way yeah he was definitely a bright spot uh in this film and probably another bright spot too while we're on the human characters was the admiral uh played by the same actor who did who played hayata in the ultraman series. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that that white-haired admiral at the beginning who ended up leaving uh, because he he got reassigned, and so someone else took over the the uh, Yamato in the movie. But that admiral, his uh, you said he's Hayata. Uh, his performance is so good, mm -hmm. and you can tell that he has not just more experience, but that he is he's just like acting on a whole another level. Than everyone else. Everyone right. else is, you know, kind of taking this more comedic tone and everything. He is very serious and taking it very seriously, and it is so good. Okay. Um, so yeah, definitely his his performance. But now talking about uh, human characters, we would be remiss <laughs> if we didn't mention Jeff. Oh, Jeff, we love Jeff. And I love Jeff's and I love Jeff so much. I don't even know what his actual name is in the film. I'm I sorry. have no idea what this guy's name <laughs> is in the movie. We called him Jeff during Kaiju quarantine because no one could remember what his name was and it just stuck. But he is the quote unquote American officer mm -hmm. that was rescued by the Yamata from the ocean after his uh, ship was attacked by Rago. The the American officer who who uh, supposedly speaks very little Japanese but but speaks his Japanese way better than he speaks his American. So he yeah. speaks Japanese <laughs> for the rest of the film. <laughs> it is. It's so so crazy. I just, I love this character. I love this character so much, Jeff. Uh whatever his whatever your name is, 
We love you. And I think it was so... Alex from Monsters vs. Men that named what that finally named him Jeff. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it was me. I think it was me, uh, Nathan, and Alex on that movie. You may have been there too. Yeah, uh, I was there too. Okay. Yeah, it was us four on the film, and we could not for the life of us remember what that gentleman's name was. And so Alex, if I'm remembering correctly, just spit out Jeff. His name is he looks like or he looks like a Jeff. So that's just yeah. Jeff just stuck. <laughs> Yeah, we just we just stuck with him, calling him Jeff. Um, another great character who, I mean, great is is kind of a a weird way of putting it, but Japanese Nick Fury in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love the nicknames yes. we gave some of these ones because we don't know what their real names are, but but Japanese Nick Fury is this captain of one of the other ships. Uh, that's alongside the Yamato. He shows up out of nowhere mm -hmm. in this movie. He is a bald Japanese man with an eye patch. He looks just like Nick Fury. And he has his own sound effects. <laughs> no one else in this movie has sound effects. This man when he does anything, when he's unbuttoning his uh, his jacket, when he's walking, he has sound effects that no one else in the movie has. It was these random like boink and just these little yes. these little random sounds. Like um, I forgot all I forgot all about that. I'm so glad you reminded me of that because we were sitting there watching this, and I think we were having we were trying to have a serious discussion about what was going on, and all of a sudden you hear these just goofy sound effects when he unbuttons his uh he unbuttons his jacket, and we're like, what what was was that a mistake? Because I even asked you, I said, Travis, do you have something running in the background at your house there? And uh, I, I had no idea it was actually in the film. It was just so funny, and yeah, you're right. He just kind of just shows up out of nowhere, but. Man, when he is on screen, he really, really is on screen because he is a he is ham. He is just pure. Oh yeah, he is just pure bone, boneless ham. I mean, that's just what that is for him. Yeah, he is Raul Julia in Street Fighter oh, levels yeah. of ham. Just <laughs> so. Oh man, he is chewing every bit of scenery he is in and i kind of love it <laughs> yeah. he is but, definitely you know, yeah he's definitely a bright spot in the movie he, he's a pleasure to watch yeah but now does he fit within the movie though that's the thing i i don't understand I, okay so here's the thing Hiyashia, the director he's also a a theater performer Mm -hmm. uh, in a very specific theater, which I'm not going to even try to pronounce because um, I'll probably pronounce it wrong. But it's a very specific style of performance in Japan. And it is at least the version that he does or the type of theater that he does is comedic. Right. So I think that he was bringing some of that comedy to this movie. Like this movie is supposed to in parts be played like a comedy. Mm hmm. Like a satire. But then that, yeah, it's supposed to, like, some parts of this movie play like a satire, but then parts of the movie are taken so deadly serious that it really throws me off because I'm like, am I supposed to take it serious or am I supposed to take it as a satire? 
And it's just like he it was almost like they couldn't he he didn't want to commit to one or the other. Yeah, I think we're supposed to take it a little bit as both. Um honestly, I I because there are parts of that movie that they have to be satire. They have to be satire. Because they play, oh, yeah. they play it so straight down the middle the whole time. And until those moments, and they're very obvious, um, yeah, it's just it's just really jarring when that happens. Like it's and it's just this little minor thing when he unbuttons his coat and these little doink sounds happen. I'm like, yeah, well, and and I don't. You might have missed it because um, I know we were talking. But when he got up from the table and walked away, there were sound effects to his footsteps. I think I did miss it. Yeah, so like I said, he has his own like set of sound effects that no one else in the movie has, and it's like, what movie? What are you? Are you a comedy? Are you a drama? Are you an action? Because you're trying to do it all, and none of it is blending well to me at least in my opinion like none of it really blended it just so when it shifted from serious you know period piece to that weird comedy it was jarring it was it was it just felt weird and then when it shifted back to being an action you know movie where they were trying to defeat the monster it that felt disingenuous because i had just spent all this time getting used to the satirical tone of it right. so the tone of this movie is just is one of the things that i think is a negative for me for sure yeah uh i mean and that's one of the and that's one of the benefits of doing an independent film like this you can pretty much do and create whatever you want uh you're not restricted necessarily by uh the whims of a of a, of a big name studio so uh yeah i mean yeah. i just don't know I don't know. There's, I feel like this film in parts has sort of an identity crisis because it wants to be mm -hmm. sort of this big budget kaiju film to be and taken seriously. It wants to be a period piece and then it wants to be a comedy or a drama a love story. You're right. It doesn't necessarily know exactly what it wants to be. Um, but you know, it was, it was entertaining. I will give it that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now I, I will, you know, I'll get into some more positives and stuff too. I, that was just a, a big issue I had with the film sure. was the tone shifts. Um, we can move into now creature. We can talk about the creature. Um, so starting, let's go from small to big. So we have the bonefish. Oh boy, I, did we have fun with the bonefish on uh, on Kaiju Quarantine? We did. We did. I remember. <laughs> We're that. adults. We are adults. We should not laugh at a name like bonefish. But <laughs> well, to be fair, Travis, by that time. I think it was already 10 o'clock at night and we were all just dead tired because we were, we had been watching, this was, this was, I think night two and we had already been watching, you know, movie after movie since say two o'clock that afternoon. And so we were all just exhausted. And, you know, at that, at 10 o'clock after you've been drinking and you're just tired, anything can be funny at that moment. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it definitely can. Um, so what did you think of the bonefish design? I like them. Honestly, I, I liked having them in the film sort of as like just this precursor to when, uh, Rago sh shows up on the screen. It's just, it's almost like 
uh, we were talking about this. We were talking about this while we were watching the film. It's almost like they follow Rago around looking for a meal. And I was going to ask you, Travis, because I've got it in my notes here. Do you think that the bonefish were parasitic or do you think that they were more like scavengers, similar to like hyenas uh, that stay fairly close to like a lion pride to sort of pick the bones after after the lions are finished? See, I. I see where you're coming from with that. I think they actually fit more with like pilot fish where they have this like symbiotic okay. relationship with Rago. Um, because if you know pilot fish who that follow uh, sharks and other um, uh, fish uh, that predator fish, they'll follow along and they will eat parasites and other little bits off of the shark. Mm-hmm. So the shark, will let them alone and let them just follow them around. And so I kind of, I, I, to me, they felt more symbiotic mm. than, than that. But, uh, but I get where you're coming from with it. Yeah. One person I would love to sort of, sort of, uh, pick their brain about it. If they were willing to watch it, uh, and tell us what they thought what is, is our friend Sam from Cinematica Animalia. Um, I think he would, I think maybe he could shed a little bit better light on what the bonefish actually are and where they work within sort of this ecosystem, because there is obviously an ecosystem going on with Rigo. He's not, he doesn't seem to be now. I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, Travis, but he doesn't seem to be a monster born of your typical nuclear radiation. He just seems more like an ancient creature awakened sort of like a, a, an old, like an ancient plesiosaur or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because even the Islanders, uh, they're new about it and and knew, you know, and, and told the, uh, told the, the Yamato about it. So, yeah. So it it is just a creature Mm -hmm. that exists in that area. Um, so yeah, it, it does, it would be interesting to get kind of a more, um, uh, a uh, uh, ecologist's viewpoint on the bonefish and Rago. Now, getting into Rago himself or herself, don't really know. There was a baby one that was killed. Then, then we had the the adult. So, don't know if it's a mama or a daddy. But um, <clears throat> uh, what did you think of the design of that creature? I like. I actually like the design because. To me, and this is probably going to be, excuse me, getting choked up too. Um, to me, the design of, of Rago does not necessarily fit within this film because it's so well done that it just, it almost feels out of place for this movie because there, you know, there are, this is, like I said, this is a, this is an independent film, had a very low budget. So, and you can obviously tell there's a low, but there's obvious, you can tell that there's a low budget involved, but Rago mm-hmm. to me looked fantastic. It, like from the CGI was good um, to the puppet, the puppet version of, of Rago looked really good too. Uh, some mm-hmm. of the shots where it, she, he, whatever, um, is jumping over the ship to attack, especially that one. Remember, we were watching the movie and we're like, whoa! And uh, it's because Rago jumped and just slapped his tail up against the battleship 
yeah, in one seamless motion. Um, which brings up sort of a, a point that we were talking about when we were watching this, Travis, was, you know, the way they portray this particular battleship is fairly accurate. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that sort of the 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 internal scenes where they're all in the cabinet meetings and stuff are, are accurate. Um, those obviously don't feel right to me. Oh yeah. No, as someone who grew up on, on boats, uh, the interior shots of this movie, th- those are obviously a private or commercial right. boat. That is not a, that is not a military boat at all. <laughs> right. But, but the point I'm making is that we were talking, uh, we were talking about yesterday where, you know, battleships like that were designed to shoot, um, to shoot forward, not necessarily mm-hmm. straight down or even straight up. So, of course, you know, anyone who's an engineer out there could tell, could be a better authority on this than probably us. But, you know, from what I understand about battleships, they're not necessarily designed to shoot like really far, like really at really, um, like 90 degree angles. I don't know that 100% for sure. I'm sure there's boats out there that do that. But, well, well, yeah, well, that's what we were talking about because the, the it's interesting that and, I, and it's one of my positives for this movie is that they had to come up with a creative way but to for the battleship to actually fight the monster because uh, like like you you were saying these battleships were designed to shoot horizontally because they are fighting other battleships right. They're not, you know, and they have depth charges to, to, you know, take out uh, submarines and they do use those against uh, Rago. And yeah, they do have anti-aircraft guns, but majority of their fighting is straight across the horizon. They are not shooting down into the water. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to uh, now they're being attacked from underneath by this sea creature, they're like, how do we how do we attack it? Because we have these big guns that could could probably take out the the creature, but we can't aim the guns down into the water. And so they have to actually come up with a creative way of doing that. And the way they do that is by flooding part of it to actually lean the boat, uh, the ship into the water so that it angles downwards. And, uh, and yeah, I, I thought that was really that was a really uh, good point in the movie. Yeah, so do I. I. I really like I said, it's um <clears throat> they did come up with uh even a creative way to defeat Rago at the end, so a way, at least a way that made sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um is there anything else that you want to uh talk about in likes or dislikes before we get into um some fun facts? Um no, not necessarily, but I will point out that it's really few and far between that we get a film that uh, directly correlates Japan's involvement with world war II. Uh this one. And I'm sure there's others, but the, but the two that come to mind first is are this one and uh, Frankenstein versus Baragon, which was a, which was an Ishiro Honda film. Uh, it's just really interesting. I love, I love, um, <clears throat> I love period pieces. Um, in general. And that was one of the, that was one of the, the bright spots for this, for this film. Uh, really to me, this film just kind of, uh, it falls short mainly due to the, to its budget. That's really what, that's what it really amounts to as far as dislikes for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that it was a period piece. Cause I, I, I do like period pieces too. And, uh, 
Japan or Japanese media, or at least you know the the uh, mainstream movies, tend to handle uh, their involvement in World War II with kid gloves. Mm-hmm. Like they don't really like to get into the real meat and nitty gritty of it. Right. Um, you know, it's same with same with a lot of American stuff. We don't really like to talk about the the horrible things that the United States did during that war because it's like uh it's a war nobody's coming out on top we do in our own mainstream stuff we do handle it with kid gloves too um so uh it is kind of interesting to see this completely set in that world war ii era um even though it did it still to me it still felt like it was handling it with kid gloves didn't really dive into the you know nitty gritty of it yeah, um which is fine that's that's not the movie they were trying to make and that's no. fine um so yeah let's let's get into some fun facts so uh we talk about rego being a an independent film and that's something the, the i i want to see more independent kaiju films mm-hmm. It was also the first Japanese monster movie in years that was a long time, actually, that was not a sequel, a remake, or based upon a pre-existing franchise. Yeah, you're right. So it's really just like it, it has to get some kind of credit for that for being completely original. Right. And I think, you know, I don't want the, the folks listening to this episode to get the impression that we're coming down too hard on the film. We're just sort of, um, we're, we're trying, we're doing our best to kind of take into account all the things that went into, to making this movie, uh, overall, you know, it's like I said, it's not a, a bad movie. It's not, it's, it's just hindered a little bit by, again, it's, it's budget and some of its act, some acting and, uh, you know, it's score and just some, just some things that, you know, I feel like could have been touched up, but now overall, you know, I, I really applaud what, what they were trying to do with this movie. Oh yeah. Um, one of the, uh, a fun fact, I, I don't know how fun, or I guess it depends on the person, uh, how fun this might, uh, they might find this, but, um, one of the actors or actresses in this movie, Yumika Hayashi, who plays uh, the island woman uh, who sneaks on board the ship. Mm-hmm. So she's actually known as Japan's original adult video queen for her performances in more than 200 adult films. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. So she had been doing adult movies for a long time. And then she had recently, at, at that point, had started appearing in more mainstream movies and mm-hmm. uh, started being in horror and art house films. Mm-hmm. But this actually was her last film because she did pass away uh, in 2005, not long after the filming of this movie, at the age of 38. Yeah, that's a that's a fun uh, little little tidbit of info. I've heard that before. I think I heard that on another podcast before when they were covering this movie or covering this, this trio of movies. There's this sort of uh, this pseudo trilogy. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's, so that's a, however you, you know, considering if you, if you like, uh, if you like that as a fun fact or not, and I'll just kind of leave it at that. Yeah. 
yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, the the cast because they they were they tried to get um, a previous prime minister uh, of Japan to play a role in it. Uh, he and it just didn't work out, and he ended up not doing it. And they tried to get a wrestler uh, who was very. I think he was a controversial wrestler there's some some kind of uh drama going on with him and they wanted him in here but he ended up not doing it so the the mixture of different kinds of actors in this movie was would have been just really interesting and, and this was just an example of that of having this adult film star in there um the film also features now where I, I usually I don't like spoiling the ending of movies um, and right. I don't don't want to spoil the ending of this movie particularly because it's an independent film. It's fairly recent. So I want people to go and watch it if they're interested in it. But we do have to talk about the end of this movie because yeah, we definitely do. Um, so if any, if anybody's interested in watching this and they don't want to hear the what the end of this movie, how it ends, skip ahead uh, or go watch it and then come back because we are going to talk about the last like 10 minutes of this movie. Sure. Because it jumps into being a kabuki play mm-hmm. and it features a special appearance by renowned kabuki actor Ukon Ichikawa. Uh, he played a real life historical figure. Uh, he was playing Saito, uh, Saito Musashibo Benke. Okay. Uh, Benke, most people know, uh, in Japan will know who Benke is. Uh, he was a real life warrior monk from Japan's feudal period. He's had a lot of kabuki plays done about him. He's had a lot of movies done about him. Uh, even Akira Kurosawa did a movie that featured Benke in it. So when Ichikawa shows up in the full Kabuki costume, Mm -hmm. that's who he's playing. Right. Now I want to hear what your reactions to the last (laughs) 10 minutes of this movie, because what what we have, they defeat the monster. Right. And we go on and, Historically, because the Yamato was a real ship, the ship we know ends up being defeated and sunk. And so it jumps ahead to that point in time mm-hmm. when the ship is being attacked and sunk. Mm-hmm. And it goes shifts back to black and white. You have uh, Ichikawa, this kabuki actor, come in in full kabuki garb, and it's just really really bizarre so yeah what, what were your what was your reactions to this it's full black and white because if i remember correctly uh the red paint is they the everything else is black and white except for the red paint on their faces not the not the actual kabuki actor's face but the right yeah the, the sailors and the soldiers faces um when i first when I first saw this, it was during quarantine. And like I said, it was late and I'm like, we think the movie's over. And then, um, I think it was, I think it was Nathan that says, Oh, just wait, just wait. And then all of a sudden it takes this really weird 
uh, a turn to it. Let's just say that it takes this really weird mm -hmm. turn. And I don't know a whole lot of, uh, I don't know a whole lot about Kabuki. I know what Kabuki actors look like. I know sort of, I know if I, if I see the costume and the makeup, I know that that is a Kabuki actor or, um, but I don't know a whole lot about that, um, that art form from Japan. And I know that you went full, full March and for this episode, <laughs> um, and did your research on it. So yeah, it was, it was weird. It was weird and it was different. Let's I'll, that's all I'll say. It was weird. It was different. And it kind of just catches you. It just kind of catches you off guard because you, they defeat the monster. There's, I think there's a, there's a couple of minutes of monologue. Um, and then it switches to this feudal period, Japan Kabuki theater sort of mood. And yeah, it was just, uh, it was just weird. Let's just say that it was just weird. It was jarring. Yeah. It's very jarring. It's very weird, especially for us who do not have any kind of real, a connection to kabuki theater um that it can be very very bizarre um i did do a lot of my, a lot of research on kabuki like after watching this film i was like i have to put that scene into context it was only like it wasn't even a full 10 minutes of the movie mm -hmm. and i spent more time researching that than anything else for this movie because i was like I have to put this into context. I have to understand what is going on in this last 10 minute scene. Um, so I have a quote from Ichikawa Inosuke, uh, the third, who was actually the, uh, the actor Ukon Ishikawa, um, who was in, uh, in the Kabuki, uh, makeup and everything in that scene, uh, his master, his sensei, uh, is the one who I'm quoting. So uh, he, in an interview that I found on YouTube, Ishikawa Inosuke uh, said the, that with Kabuki, the Ka stands for music or song. The Bu means dance and the Ki means theater. So the three aspects of music, dance, and theater form one harmonious whole. And he went into some of the history of Kabuki, how it dates back from the Edo period when the townspeople had a lot of power. And mm -hmm. it's a form of entertainment that arose among the common people, which okay. was different than no. Now, no theater was an older uh, used by the ruling class uh, form of theater. And in no, instead of fa using face paint, they use masks. And the uh, no. Okay. The no masks are meant to, if you look at them from different angles, they're mm -hmm. meant to show different expressions. Okay. So like they, if they look up, they're supposed to look happy. If they look down, they're supposed to look sad. So it's just this, this one mask that shows multiple expressions uh, based on which angles that it takes. And that form of theater was more abstract and kind of a uh, more cerebral, but Kabuki was supposed to be fun and uh, fun for the common person. And so it's supposed to be strange and exaggerated. And when you look at Kabuki, if anybody does look up Kabuki, the, the bright colored 
costumes, mm-hmm. the huge, huge, huge kimonos that they wear. Because they wear, like, it, it's not uncommon for them to wear, like, seven, eight, nine, ten layers of kimonos to just have this huge costumes and elaborate costumes. And it's, so it's supposed to be exaggerated. It's supposed to be weird. It's supposed to kind of feel strange. The way they talk is not in a normal conversational manner. When they talk, they have a very unique cadence and a very unique way of speaking that is completely different than, than your average way of talking. So everything about Kabuki is supposed to feel strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the um, I think we'll post in the show notes, Travis, the video that you showed me yesterday. I think it was. Ye- yeah, it was yesterday mm-hmm. uh, about the the Kabuki rendition of Rise of Skywalker, not Rise of Skywalker. Um, uh, the Last Jedi. The last. There we go. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was super so interesting. Y- yeah. In uh, in Disney Japan. Uh, I think is where it was happening at. They did a special performance of, and it was a very famous Kabuki actor. And uh, um, I forget who, who, what his name was, but he was behind it. He helped organize it. And it was a Kabuki telling retelling of the last Jedi. And seeing a story that you're familiar with, done in a kabuki style even if you don't have subtitles because there's no subtitles for it it is so bizarre the head movements the the movements of their body the way they talk the music in it is so strange and and exaggerated and just weird and now i talked about how kabuki literally means song dance and theater kabuki Mm-hmm. But kabuki, also another possible uh, origin for the word, is to means to tilt or to be off center, and it is used in a. Uh, it was used to describe or uh, kabukamono, I think was was the the word that was used to, used to describe these samurai during the Edo period who wore very outlandish clothing and very, you know, uh, strange off kilter, uh, designs and clothing and stuff. And so the idea of Kabuki is to be kind of off kilter, off center. And you get that in Rego because it, 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 like we said, it throws you off because it's like, it is completely, out of left field and completely weird. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. That's, that's the best way I know how to describe this. I know it sounds super generic, but that is the best way I know personally how to describe that few minutes at the end of the film as just weird and jarring and kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is super fascinating. Like I said, I did a lot of research into kabuki after this because i was like i have to i watched uh, you know some kabuki plays some kabuki theater i watched the uh i watched some traditional ones and then i also watched like we said the star wars one because that just was fascinating to me um one of the most striking things about kabuki actors is the white paint with 
bright. You'll so they'll have like black highlights, and then sometimes they'll have blue or red or whatever lines drawn across their face, and the different colors represent different things. But that makeup was made to uh, highlight their facial expressions to make them really excessively uh, visible because when people were sitting in the back of the theater or when they were sitting far away from the stage, they wanted to be able to see the expressions on the person's face, the actor's face. And so they did this as a way of highlighting their facial features. Uh, And so when you watch, if you watch this uh, scene in Rego, when uh, Ichikawa-san shows up, he does have the the face paint, the the kabuki face paint on, and it's yeah, it's it's really interesting. I do recommend people look into kabuki if it if you found that scene in Rego fascinating or weird. I encourage you to look into it. I'm not going to say that from a Western person, me particularly that I enjoy it the way I enjoy a, you know, play a theater play or theater performance, um, like, you know, Phantom of the Opera or something like that. But it is interesting Mm -hmm. and I am fascinated by it. Um, but I think there is, there is a disconnect in the culture. Uh, one of the things, one last thing I do want to talk about though, with that scene in Rego, the Kabuki scene is in Kabuki, the music is very unique because there's it's a it's a very uh, specific instruments that are used in the Kabuki theater. But again, we talked about it already. Again, in that scene in Rego, when it was when it goes full Kabuki, they layer over J-pop on it. Mm-hmm, they do. It's it's and it ruins no. it. <laughs> It does. It really does ruin it. I, I I don't want to be too, I don't, I'm trying not to be too mean, but it really does. It does ruin that scene for me. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. I kind of, as, as, as weird as it is, as, as weird as Kabuki theater is to me as an outsider, I do still wish they kind of went full Kabuki and just did the music that they would do in a normal Kabuki play uh, because that would have been more interesting than just a generic J-pop song they put over top of this. It was so, so distracting. Um, So, okay. So yeah, so that's enough of that because like I said, I went fully deep into kabuki and was just really doing a lot of research so moving on from that (laughs) what are your final thoughts on this film sure i'll get i'll go ahead and give my uh i'll go ahead and give uh, my score after i give my final thoughts but um okay yeah yeah uh i basically it this is this is how i feel about the film you know the film can be summed up for me in two words unrealized potential I see the vision for what the film was supposed to be and wanted to represent. I respect it for the risks that it took, but the combination of significantly low budget, unrefined CG and less than stellar acting makes the film at times tough to watch. I find the merging of kaiju action, historical period drama interesting, and I applaud director Shinpei Hayashiya for his vision. 
his determination to break from the pack of giant monster films that had come before should be celebrated and used as inspiration for many other kaiju films to come. And that's basically the best way I can sum up my experience with this movie. And overall, I'm going to go ahead uh, with all those things, you know, taken into account, you know, it being an independent film, you know, what the vision of the movie, what it was supposed to be and the execution. I'm going to go ahead and give it a three out of five Godzukis. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what uh, we were going to get into our Godzuki score. I forgot about that because <laughs> I got too I got too involved in the Kabuki that I forgot the Godzuki. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so uh our godzuki score for anybody who's new to the podcast uh we like to pay homage to the great godzuki who is godzilla's bumbling nephew from the hanna-barbera series from the 70s by using him as our yardstick to measure these films uh everybody should know the theme song where it goes and godzuki <laughs> <laughs> um so our godzuki scores you gave it a three out of five uh and i'm going to agree with you i'm going to give it a three out of five godzukis because i feel the same way i think there's a lot of unrealized uh, un uh, potential i'm just like you i see the vision i see what he's going for i see the heart and soul that he put into it but it's just there were so many flaws in it that I couldn't give it a higher score. Um, mm -hmm. My thoughts that I wrote down here as my final thoughts, uh, I, I said this movie was really hard for me to rate, and it really was. It says, on one hand, I see the flaws that the movie certainly has. But on the other hand, I see the effort and creativity poured into it. My ultimate thought is, while it's an interesting and original monster movie, it's not necessarily a must-see. However, I would love to see more independent kaiju films, especially ones that try new and creative things. So I think we both agreed that this movie didn't hit the mark, but we don't want to discourage other people from trying new and creative things like how they did in this film. Yeah, I totally agree. If you've not seen this movie... I say that it is worth your time to watch it just for the simple fact that I'm like a lot of folks and I like to support uh, independent filmmakers and independent uh, studios. Uh, so if you if you're like me and, and you know, you like um, a, a sort of a fresh, fresher perspective on a movie genre, in this case, it would be, you know, Kaiju Tokusa or uh, Kaiju and giant monster movie genre. Um, I would say absolutely, you know, uh, go watch this movie. If I'm not mistaken, it's free to watch. Uh, if you're a prime subscriber, uh, it's dirt cheap. You can find it. I believe at your local Walmart on DVD, you may even be able to find it online at, uh, archive at archive.org or maybe even YouTube. I'm not even sure exactly where all of it, all of it is available. It's like I said, like we talked about, it was made in 2005, but it's just now getting a Western release. So, but for, yeah. from what I've seen, it's not super hard to find and it is worth, it is worth your time to watch it. Yeah. Now let's, uh, so that, that's the end of our review of Rego. So let's quickly, we're going to do one last little segment 
of this podcast before we close out this episode. And I want to get to it because I'm really excited about it. It's we're going to move into Kaiju Class! Kaiju Clash! Um, so for anybody who hasn't listened to a previous episode, not our previous, it was like two weeks ago, uh, we started a new segment where we put two giant monsters up against each other. One of us takes one side, one of us takes the other side. We debate a little bit and then we let the listeners decide which one is the winner. And so the winner from that one, I talked about in a, uh, in a previous episode, but uh, the winner from our previous Kaiju Clash was Baragon against Barugon. Barugon lost. The Rainbow Death Monster lost. Um, but, you know, we talked about it. it might be more of a popularity thing than, than anything. Uh, but this time around, we've got another Toho versus Daie situation. And I'm going to let you start this okay. run because we're going to let the loser, the loser each week, each time we do this, the loser of the previous one will start the the next one. Uh, so we've got Biolante versus Legion. Okay. All right. So I'm taking, uh, I'm playing advocate for my girl, my home girl, Biolante. Um, and honestly, I'm going to say that Violante is one of my favorite kaiju. I've even, uh, I've even stated that I like her more than say other female kaiju. Like there's a ton, there's not a ton, but, uh, even Mothra, I don't, I, I like Mothra, but I think I like Violante just a little bit more. Um, especially after reading some of the Matt Frank comics. Um, but yeah, so for Violante, one of her main abilities is regeneration which comes from her which comes from her being uh an adaptation or a a, a a mutation rather of godzilla cells and so she gets those uh regenerative uh abilities from those g cells and i'm gonna say that even though legion has some really interesting attacks i want to say that biolante's uh, regenerative regenerative abilities are gonna really help her out in this battle. Yeah. Well, let let me let me. I I have done again. I have done my research. So I said to you before we started this episode, I am gonna bring it. So first and foremost, the Mother Legion, who is the version that I'm I'm actually advocating for, is bigger than Biolante. That's true. She is 140 meters tall versus Biolante is 120 meters tall. She is super durable. In fact, she is able to withstand a frontal assault from the JSDF and resist Gamera's ultimate mana blast for several seconds before it finally consumes her. And that is Gamera's ultimate firepower. There, that is him absorbing all of the energy from the earth and 
fully blasting it straight at her, and she's still able to withstand it for a period of time. Right. Biolante takes damage from the human weapons and is, is susceptible to human weapons. Mm-hmm. One huge advantage that uh, uh, the Legion has over Biolante is sh- her ability to fly. She has insect-like wings that give her the ability to fly despite her enormous size. She is more maneuverable and is able to uh, travel and move faster than, than Biolante is able to. She has egg cases in her abdominal region that house soldier legions that she can dispatch at will. And she has a microwave shell uh, which was she was able to use that attack to take out a chunk of Gamera's shell. Now, if you are familiar, if anyone's familiar with Gamera films, Gamera's shell can take a beating from a lot of things. And Legion's attack was able to take a chunk out of it. She has what's called the Red Rod, which is able to burn even uh, Gamera, sets him, you know, like burns him, which if we've, if you're familiar with Gamera films, he's mostly fireproof. Like he, like he's, he goes inside of volcanoes and lava on a regular basis. So he's pretty fireproof and this was able to burn him. And it was so powerful that the only thing that Gamera could do, the only way Gamera was able to defeat Legion was by absorbing the energy from the earth to survive. So Legion mother is one bad mother. (laughs) Full stop. excuse me are you off your soapbox yet yeah are you done are you done okay i felt like that i felt like that was uh 10 minutes of my life i'm never gonna get back again um, oh oh hush oh uh, hush but no okay so let me ask you yes legion is taller Biolante's heavier she's a hefty girl but one thing that mm-hmm. she does have that legion does not have are these tentacles and she has a lot of tentacles, some of them very deadly tentacles that can pierce even Godzilla's hide. And I would even venture to guess that could even pierce uh, Gamera's hide as well. Um, so let me ask you, yes, uh, Legion can fly. But what, ha- but what good is flight when you're wrapped up in, in, in these vines and tentacles? You can't go anywhere. Biolante could easily, easily wrap down long enough to just saturate her entire outer body and outer shell with this corrosive, nasty acid, basically just melting her down in real time. I mean, I don't see, uh, I don't see uh, Legion being able to withstand that. Yes, Legion is very durable, but how durable can she possibly be uh, from a corrosive acid that just basically melts? anything that it touches but her exoskeleton was able to withstand again a full frontal attack from gamma using all of the energy of the earth 
and she was still able to withstand that for a short period of time. I don't think that corrosive acid is going to do any damage to her. And talking about the vines, those vines are not fireproof. We have proof of that in in Godzilla versus Biollante that though the Biollante is not fireproof. And you know what what Legion has? That red rod that can set things on fire and burn things. Yeah, but those vines, Travis, those vines, Travis, can come from anywhere. You you forget that that basically uh Biolante is is just this gigantic mutated Godzilla plant. And so plants have roots. And I'm gonna assume I'm safely assuming that she has those roots and those vines strategically placed under the earth's surface that could spring up at any moment and catch Legion by surprise. I mean, she, Biolante does, yes, Legion does have some very impressive attacks, but I'm going to say that out of the two monsters, Biolante is the most strategic. And although it, although Biolante probably would have a very tough time against Legion's uh, brute force attacks, Ultimately, I want to say that Biolante's uh, smarts and intelligence would win out. Uh, she would sustain some damage. I'm not going to say that she wouldn't sustain some damage, but but you know, cut you know her regenerative regenerative regenerating abilities. There we go. Um, coupled with you know sneak attacks and just being smarter than Legion, I'm going to have to give it to Biolante. No, I I think the raw power that legion has is still going to overwhelm biolante biolante was defeated just by godzilla's atomic breath alone well, well, uh, well hang on hang on think about what that, you just said for a second godzilla's atomic breath now if i remember correctly then in that film and in the comics biolante is able to take several blasts from that very same atomic breath before finally uh, succumbing to it. Yeah, well, she has to transform into a spore state, which is basically just scatter her body out into this like pollen-like to be able to avoid attacks and everything. But uh, ultimately, it is the radiation and the atomic breath that does you, her in. I'm glad you... It's not. I'm glad you brought up that special. spore state because that I was waiting for you. I was waiting for you, Travis, to set up that trap for yourself. So here's my theory. Yeah, say Legion unleashes her attack. Biolante uh, puts up a good battle. You know, Legion is Legion is not. She's not dead, but she's hurt. Um, so Legion apparent or uh, what? appears to defeat Biolante. Biolante goes to her spore state, but regenerates coming back as a brand new Biolante to bring in the death blow and just wear down Mother Legion even more. I don't see uh, Mother Legion being able to withstand numerous regenerating Biolantes over and over and over for a long period of time, eventually, eventually that exoskeleton is going to wear down. It may take a while, but it's going to wear down. And that's one of the big advantages that Biolante has on her side. Now, Legion 
has such powerful attacks that she could wipe out every oh, individual no, no, okay, cell no, and just no, burn no, no, no. every cell of of no, now Biolante. But talking about that spore state, the spore state that Biolante goes into, yes, she can avoid attacks using that, but she has to come back to solid state at some point to be able to attack. She cannot stay in that state forever. And I think that the raw power that uh legion has also the maneuverability she is faster she's quicker she's she can fly she can travel she is more maneuverable more powerful and is able to withstand more firepower than biolante ever was able to in okay. her movie all right so all right so <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to spend all day and I don't want to get salty over it. So I tell you what, Travis, we're going to let the listeners and the fans decide who won this argument. Yes. So if anybody agrees with me and has the correct answer, <laughs> you can vote on. <laughs> no. Uh, so we're going to post a poll on the Kaiju Groupie Facebook group and on our social medias on Twitter. Uh, and uh, if you want to, you can vote to see which one of these female kaiju will reign supreme and we will read out the results next week so uh that being said we want to make sure that everyone knows that they can follow us on uh twitter at kaiju weekly you can also follow michael at the kaiju groupie uh or at kaiju groupie 54 on twitter and you can also check out the kaiju groupie facebook group that is where you can see those uh those polls that we're going to put up now the next thing that we're going to do to close out this episode is we're going to ask the trivia question that's going to hint to next week now next week's episode we're going to have some special guests and on their show they like to do rhymes uh to to uh instead of trivia questions they do rhymes so instead of doing straight up trivia questions i decided let's do some rhymes to uh, talk to hint to next week's okay, episode. I'm ready. I got my rhyme ready. All right. Well, then you go ahead. Okay, sure. So mine goes like this: When we're joined by two monstrous men, will they frown or will they grin? When we see Kristen go underwater, will she survive or become kaiju fodder? That's excellent. That's better than mine because mine was just after watching a movie starring Kristen Stewart. Do we think she succeeded or do we think she blew it? <laughs> I think she blew it. But yes, uh, Travis, we are we are going to be joined by Alex and Eric from the Monsters vs. Men podcast. It's probably one of the um, it's probably one of the, the the guest shows that I've been looking most forward to because I really like uh, interacting with those two on Twitter. And they're just a lot of fun. They're a lot of great guys. And if anyone who's never listened to their show, uh, Alex is the Godzilla expert. He's the Godzilla genius. Uh, we call him the professor, uh, <laughs> the doctor of Godzilla nomics, if you will, in the community. And uh, Eric is just the film snob. No, I, I, I kid, I kid, I kid. Uh, Eric, Eric is Alex's best friend. They've been friends forever, from what I understand. And they've been going on this journey through the entire Godzilla franchise. And I have to 
um, give them props because to watch every film in consecutive order for that long and review them, I mean, that takes, that takes guts and that takes fortitude. And I really applaud those guys. I enjoy their show uh, a whole lot. I love interacting with them on social media. They're a lot of fun and we will post a link to their show in the show notes for this episode. Yes. Yes. And, 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 and let's, let's save all the flattery for next week. Come on, come on. Okay. All right, all right. All right. Um, so yeah, to close out this episode, I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to follow the podcast on social media, like we said, we are at Kaiju weekly on Twitter and Kaiju weekly pod on Instagram. You can send questions, comments, or answers to trivia questions to our email. Kaiju weekly at gmail.com. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, where we post the latest episodes and clips from older episodes. You can also find us at the Kaiju Groupie Facebook group, and you can also follow Michael at Kaiju Groupie 54 on Twitter and the Kaiju Groupie on Instagram. And we also want to say a big thank you to Brian Sheecher and Thorax for support supporting us on Patreon. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash kaiju weekly pod and so until next week we're going to say help control the monsters and men population uh-oh no i don't like where this is going uh -oh. no 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 travis no we're not going there, not going there. <laughs> bye guys <laughs>